we might be better served to just listen to that <laughs> than listen to me. But I'm going to send you the link to this. This is the Advent Carol service from Trinity College, Cambridge. Trinity College and Kings are the two largest colleges at Cambridge, and Trinity is right across from where C.S. Lewis lectured. So it's one of the places that he would have worshipped when he was there. But one of the things that's remarkable about this is you feel the power of truth and beauty and proclamation of the gospel all coming together in a way that is just wondrous. So I would encourage you when I send you the link out, it's an hour long, but it is so worth it. So you don't even have to guess what it is, because I told you. (laughs) But on that note, uh, let us begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this night. We thank you for the gift of this season of Advent, where our hearts are stirred by the wonder and hope of Jesus' incarnation that is coming at Christmas. Lord, we thank you that that is good news that changes everything. And Lord, as we look into Lewis's work in the screw tape letters tonight, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that our hearts might be lined up more and more with yours. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, oops, sorry. I just can't stop. <laughs> um, tonight we are in letter 10, and letter 10 is another one of those just remarkable letters in this book that show such amazing insight, not only into the human condition, but into the direction that culture was headed. And so we see uh, how important it is to listen to these words because they, they're not always comfortable to hear because he has our number, or at least he has mine. And um, it, is, it is something good to think about. Um, just one quick word about one of the handouts. Uh, I don't know how many of you read the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I commend the Wall Street Journal to you. I think it's one of the better newspapers these days out there. But there was this remarkable article that came out last week. And Linda, would you read the headline for us? Don't believe in God, lie to your children. (laughs) Don't believe in God, lie to your children. And the basic thrust of the article is that nihilism, the view that many people in our culture have, is just horrible for children and causes anxiety and depression and all of this. And when someone they love dies... And you have to say, well, there's nothing but dust. <laughs> it says, that's a terrible thing to do a child, to a child. So just lie to them and say, there is a God and there is a heaven. Well, I can't even, I'm just not even, but read the article. Read the article. So another good reason to do what this verse says. Let's say this together. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And this is such a great verse for Advent. The great collect for the first week of Advent talks about casting away the works of darkness and putting on the armor of light. And it's such a proactive uh, wake up. It reminds me of the... uh, hymn that we sing sometimes, O church arise and put your armor on, 
because all too often we are wandering around as easy targets. So again, why are we studying this? First, understanding that we're in a battle, learning to think Christianly and develop a Christian worldview, understanding the psychology of temptation, habits to cultivate, to deepen faith in Christ, and living a boldly Christian life, not an anemic Christian life, not a lip service, Casper milk toast kind of Christian life, but one that is full of joy and courage and changes the world. So one of the big subtexts in this book uh, that we keep harping on because it's so important is habits. And we forget that our day-to-day lives are just a string of habits, and we're, we're mostly blind to them. But what Lewis points out in this book the whole strategy of screw tape and the forces of evil is to not ever let us cultivate habits of virtue or habits that draw us closer to God. Because if we could just keep in the realm of good intentions, we won't ever do anything. And so habits so very important. And we talked about this book, The Common Rule, about how your habits need to match your worldview. And that when you do that, You don't just know about God and neighbor, but you actually love God and your neighbor. There's a new Mumford & Sons song that just came out that's called The Blind Leading the Blind, and it has a remarkable little verse in it that says, my generation, this is a paraphrase, my generation is consumed with living in front of the mirror, and I need to learn the name of my neighbor. There's a deep truth there. All right, so we've been talking about habits to cultivate to annoy the devil. Annoying the devil is a virtuous thing that you want to do. Um, You don't want the devil to just think, well, I don't need to worry about her. Um, She's not doing anything. So you want to cultivate these habits that are going to annoy the devil. So we're going to run through these really quickly from the earlier letters because they all build on each other. Connect your thinking and doing Develop a coherent worldview and pattern your life accordingly. Focus on universal issues, what is true, good, and beautiful, not just the stream of what your culture is throwing at you. This is a lot like what Hank was talking about in the homily tonight, of not looking down, but looking up. Looking up, setting your mind on things above. Spend time in beautiful places reading things that make you think and considering their implications. Our Christian world of the past hundred years is the first time in history that we really have lost this idea of how important beauty is in the Christian faith. Nature and the beauty that God has made are all designed as pointers, not to worship the beauty, but to point us to the one who made the beauty. And we, we rush around so much that we don't contemplate that beauty that God has flung all around us. Um, exploring the real sciences and the wonder of the earth and the heavens, the more that you explore how really miraculous creation and the universe are, the more it should fire up your sense of wonder. And then loving God with your mind. Uh, this is something that we're not always very good at. We say it in church pretty much every week in the Great Commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we don't like thinking, or at least it's easier not to think sometimes. It's easier to just watch Netflix, and um, that is not what we're called to do. All right, so habits from the second letter. Embrace Christianity not just as a theory, but by committing your life and being transformed. Deepen your understanding of the church and scripture and history. We have an anemic understanding of the church, and we forget that we are united with all of those saints, all of those who have named the Lord Jesus as their Lord from the beginning of the Christian era right up through now, and they are praying for us, and we are united to them in a mystical way, and we need to remember that. We also need to learn to view others through the lens of Christ, to cultivate that view instead of the view of what can I get from this person. We're so much in a culture that uses people and loves things, and we need to reverse that to um, love people and use things. 
and then focusing on the ultimate goal and joy of following Christ. So often we forget what we're building. It's that old analogy of the guys beating on the stones with the hammers, and one says, it's just terrible, I'm miserable, I sit here all day and bang on this rock. And then the next guy says, when he's asked what he's doing, he says, I'm building a cathedral. And they're doing exactly the same thing, but their mindset's totally different. And then keep at the front of your mind a sense of wonder at God's grace and mercy and calling a sinner like you to be in relationship with him. We have so lost this sense that salvation is a wondrous miracle. We are, or at least I, are, we're all too prone to think, well, you know, he's kind of lucky that I'm on his side. You know, that is, that is a dangerous place to be. We need to remember the wonder of what Christ did for us. Uh, letter three, keep your relationships surrounded with prayer and the Holy Spirit. Don't let Satan get a foothold. Avoid roots of bitterness. Integrate your spiritual life and your outward behavior. Practice nurturing and practical prayer for people. This is as opposed to the bless her heart kind of prayer uh, that's sort of like gossip. Uh, be gracious and speak life to people. People that are the clerk at the store, people that you run into on the street. There are a lot of people that are speaking nastiness, and a Christian should be speaking life to people. And they drive cars. That's very true. <laughs> and then cultivate spiritual humility. Be glad for others' growth. And back on prayer, Screwtape has got so much good stuff about prayer. Pray with serious, focused attention. That means setting your mind, using your energy, and pray expectantly that God is going to do something, that you're going to be in the presence of the one who actually made the heavens and the earth. That should get our attention. And then this whole idea about considering your setting and your posture. Um, thinking back to that Advent carol service that we just saw, being in that kind of setting is very different than sitting in front of a TV set. Uh, and so putting yourself in settings like that that are going to draw you toward God is really important. Focusing on Christ and his kingdom when we pray, and you may be better at this than I am, but it is all too easy to have your prayer life look sort of like the Publix to go shopping list. <laughs> you know, these are the things that I want this week and I want them at 4 p.m. You know, it's, it's all too easy to get that way and not pray thy kingdom come, that you would replace my agenda, Lord, with your agenda. And then be confident that God's presence is with you and visible and yet completely real. Letter five, bolster your faith and cultivate virtue. We've talked about the word cultivate is a big, strong word that involves work. We don't like work. Um, at least I don't, that you want things instantly. Cultivating requires time and effort. Uh, in the face of war or calamity, turn to God. Cry out in prayer at the moment that whatever is happening is happening. We are all too prone, especially men, to try to fix it using our own resources first. And after that doesn't work very well or we make it worse, then we pray. But we are to, the scripture is so clear, we're to cry out to God. We're to focus on things that are bigger than ourselves. The kingdom of heaven should be our focus, not our own little issues. Understand your mortality. I could spend a whole hour just on this. Um, it's so interesting to watch television commercials and see what they reflect about our culture. Um, but I'm so intrigued by all of these different serums that are out there now that are very expensive. And apparently, if I got the right serum, my wrinkles would go away, and places that are puffy would shrink. I don't really believe that. Um, but we are all about trying to cheat the clock and look young and vital and healthy, because if we look good, we're going to live forever, right? Or not. So... Understanding your mortality is so important because if you know you're not here forever, 
then you might want to invest in the kingdom where you will be forever. And then avoiding contented worldliness is one of the great lines in this book that Screwtape says, if we can just get the Christians to the point of contented worldliness, we've won the game. We don't need to tempt anyone to any spectacular sin like adultery or murder, because if they're all just sitting around fat, dumb, and happy, they won't do anything. And so we're good. And then some truths about spiritual warfare. The devil wants to fill you with anguish and bewilderment and despair. He is not neutral. He's not nice. He wants to fill you with these things. And when you experience those, you need to resist. Scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But resisting is easier when you do it with other people, where you get people to pray for you, you do some of these other things. And then also, remember, the devil is constantly seeking to undermine your faith and prevent you from cultivating habits of virtue. It's as if you were trying to run the 440 dash, and there's a whole line of people that are running out and sticking their leg out in front of you when you're trying to run. That's the way Satan operates. The sixth letter, dwell in the present and refuse to embrace worry, fear, anxiety for the future, awfulizing this great, if you haven't read Matthew 6 in a while, just spend a week reading nothing but Matthew 6, because it is all about anxiety, which is one of the diseases of the church today. And this whole idea of considering the lilies, we don't do that, we don't think about We don't consider anything because that means you have to look at it for too long. We're too busy to consider. But the idea is that we are supposed to consider the lilies of the field. And there's something about looking at that beauty in nature that connects us to the idea that God is in charge and we don't need to worry. Jesus says, do not worry in the imperative command form six times in that one chapter. So there might be a point there. The second thing, discipline your mind to be sensitive to sinful patterns of thoughts and temptations so you can avoid them. And that leads to fostering love and charity and individual relationships with real people. This is the whole thing. Remember, there used to be the cartoon up there on the original lesson about this that says, I love humanity. It's just people I can't stand. (laughs) And all too often that's the way it is. We're so worried about those poor people way over there starving in Africa. But boy, that neighbor of mine, they left their garbage cans out. We are not loving in those relationships. They're right in front of us where God is putting people in our path, and we need to learn to be sensitive to that. Keep will and intellect and fantasy straight in your thinking because, again, fantasy and feelings about things aren't going to change anything. They are not going to help you to follow Jesus. Uh, Acts of the will embodied in habits are the things that frighten Satan. All right, the seventh letter, know your enemy, that he's real and proactive and be alert. Cultivate extreme devotion to Jesus Christ. All other extremism is dangerous to spiritual health. This whole letter focuses on that and how one of the things that Satan loves to do is to get us to be extreme about something that maybe has a tinge of something good in it. Like we might be extreme environmentalist, and being an environmentalist is biblical. We are to be stewards of creation. But if we are environmentalist first and Christian second, we have messed it up. And so this whole thing of cultivating, there's that word again, extreme devotion to Christ. Avoid factions. We are in probably the most fractious and faction-ridden era in our country's history. And what Screwtape wants is for us all to get surrounded with people who are just like us, that we can just say, these people are just like us, and we're very comfortable in our little salt shaker here, that we can stay in our salt shaker and only be surrounded with other salt and never get shaken out to make any kind of difference in the world. 
And that's not to say that <coughs> fellowship is a bad thing. Fellowship is a wonderful thing. But the problem is when we start thinking we are better than other people and we forget the idea that Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, we can begin to get in trouble. And then keeping your faith in Christ as the core and framework of your life with prayer and sacrament and charity and scripture, uh, that is so important because if our framework is off, if you've got your ladder on the wrong building, you are sunk. All right, letter eight. Seek spiritual growth and deeper commitment to Christ in trough periods rather than seeking to reclaim a feeling. Some of y'all know that old song, Hooked on a Feeling. (laughs) I'm high on believing (laughs) that you're in love. Well, anyway. Um, But the, the whole thing of that is that a lot of us Christians are hooked on a feeling. We want to have that rush of the Holy Spirit that... Sometimes it's the Holy Spirit, but sometimes it's just our feelings. And what we, what we try to do sometimes is to get that feeling back rather than checking our spirit, seeing what's going on, what the Lord might be wanting to teach us, and leaning into God in those periods and asking people to pray for us. Um, again, this is just like the Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed, letting the fountain of life and the trinity flow over into your life. We forget that the only place that life really is is in the trinity, in Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the closer we get to that fountain, we're going to get splashed. And so moving toward Christ, moving toward the trinity, is so important rather than staying where we are and then trying to see if we can grab a little bit of God to add into the mix. Um, Respond to God's wooing. Woo is an old-fashioned word, but it's all through scripture, and God wooing his people. And it's a beautiful image, and it's one that requires a response from us. But part of it is you have to be listening. You can't hear someone wooing you if your ears are filled with everything else. Um, Resolve to carry out from the well alone spiritual disciplines and duties, even when you don't feel like it. Um, This is one of the diseases of our culture right now. If we don't feel like it, we just don't do it. I saw a hilarious post on social media from someone whom I slightly know, who shall remain nameless, who was talking about a new Netflix series had just dropped. And basically it said, I'm taking three sick days. But that is a that is so typical in a lot of ways. Yeah, we feel like we we should just get to do what we want to do. Um, Discipline is not really part of the equation, but scripture is all written from a worldview of the time where people were disciplined. Remember, this is when if you were the watchman working for the Roman army and you fell asleep, you got put to death. So, something to consider. Um, Seek to obey and endure even in the darkest times. Um, Our last quotation that we'll do at the end of class is all about that. And then this great little part that Screwtape gets in trouble later in the book for saying this. One must face the fact that all the talk about kids, that is God's, love for men, and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. God loves us. Satan does not. Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And then the second thing, in trough periods, much as we hate to admit this, when things are hard, that is the time when we grow. Then letter nine, be proactively on guard when you are fatigued and your inner world is cold and drab. That's when you are an easy target for Satan. That's when you need fellowship. That is when you need people to help you. That is when you need scripture. That is when you need worship, all those kinds of things. And then secondly, seek and enjoy the pleasures that God has created. Remember last week, Lewis starts on this theology of pleasure, that God is the one that's the source of all pleasures. And Satan has sort of stolen that. And our culture thinks all the pleasures are kind of on the dark side. And 
that is completely antithetical to scripture. Every good, perfect, beautiful thing comes down from the Father of Lights, and we need to embrace those pleasures and not be seen as people living impoverished, joyless kind of lives. Christians should be living the most robustly joyous lives of anybody around. Seeking earnestly for a deeper walk with God through spiritual disciplines, where you expect to be growing instead of just seeking to have a feeling all the time. Um, Fire your sense of wonder about God's grace and saving you. That's very similar to an earlier one. Think clearly about truth and falsehood, and do not buy into the historical point of view. I'm going to go just on a quick little rabbit trail here. Um, Lewis's lecture when he started at Cambridge that's called De Descriptione Temporum, where he talks about being a dinosaur, um, really addresses this point. This is one of Lewis's most important contributions to modern thinking, or really thinking of any kind. Uh, And that is the whole idea that this embracing of progress and the latest thing that our culture is so obsessed with is one of the most dangerous tendencies in the history of the human race. Because when you adopt that point of view, you say everything and everyone that came before, they were not nearly as smart and capable and as advanced as we are. And therefore, we can discount all of the accumulated wisdom of the human race. And he said, what's happened because of technology and machines is that with your iPhone, when you have an iPhone 4 today, um, what's the latest iPhone that's out now? 11. 11. 11. Okay. You're seven generations behind. <laughs> and your iPhone 11 is demonstrably better than your iPhone 4. And so he said the problem is in technology, there really is progress. And things that were older aren't as good. They're clunky. They don't work as well. But he said the problem with that is that we adopt that view and we start thinking that way about everything. And that that is profoundly dangerous. And then spiritual truths, God is the author of all pleasures and moderated religion is as useful to the devil as no religion at all. Uh, this is sort of the, um, the ideal Rotarian kind of thing. Love Rotary. Rotary is a great organization. But it's not the same thing as being a follower of Jesus Christ. And so this whole idea of just being a nice person, um, that is not what it means to boldly follow Jesus. Which brings us at last, um, to letter 10. So, uh, my dear Wormwood, I was delighted to hear from Triptwees that your patient has made some very desirable new acquaintances and that you seem to have used this event in a really promising manner. I gathered that the middle-aged married couple who called at his office are just the sort of people we want him to know. Rich, smart, superficially intellectual, and brightly skeptical about everything in the world. I gather they are even vaguely pacifist, not on moral grounds, but from an ingrained habit of belittling anything that concerns the great mass of their fellow men, and from a dash of purely fashionable and literary communism. This is excellent. And you seem to have made good use of all his social, sexual, and intellectual vanity. Tell me more. Did he commit himself deeply? I don't mean in words. There's a subtle play of looks and tones and laughs by which a mortal can imply that he is of the same party as those to whom he's speaking. That is the kind of betrayal you should specially encourage, because the man does not fully realize it himself, and by the time he does, you will have made withdrawal difficult. No doubt he must very soon realize that his own faith is in direct opposition to the assumptions on which all the conversation of his new friends is based. I don't think that matters much provided you can persuade him to postpone any open acknowledgement of the fact. And this, with the aid of shame, pride, modesty, and vanity, will be easy to do. As long as the postponement lasts, he will be in a false position. He will be silent when he ought to speak and laugh when he ought to be silent. He will assume, at first only by his manner, but presently by his words, all sorts of cynical and skeptical attitudes which are not really his. 
but if you play them well, they may become his. All mortals tend to turn into the thing they're pretending to be. This is elementary. The real question is how to prepare for the enemy's counterattack. The first thing is to delay as long as possible the moment at which he realizes this new pleasure as a temptation. Since the enemy's servants have been preaching about the world as one of the great standard temptations for 2,000 years, this might seem difficult to do. But fortunately, they've said very little about it for the last few decades. In modern Christian writings, though I see much, indeed more than I like about mammon, I see few of the old warnings about worldly vanities, the choice of friends, and the value of time. All that your patient would probably classify as Puritanism. And may I remark in passing that the value we have given to that word is one of the really solid triumphs of the last hundred years. By it, we rescue annually thousands of humans from temperance, chastity, and sobriety of life. Sooner or later, however, the real nature of his new friends must become clear to him. And then your tactics must depend on the patient's intelligence. If he's a big enough fool, you can get him to realize the character of the friends only while they are absent. Their presence can be made to sweep away all criticism. If this succeeds, he can be induced to live, as I've known many humans live, for quite long periods, two parallel lives. He will not only appear to be, but actually be, a different man in each of the circles he frequents. Failing this, there's a subtler and more entertaining method. He can be made to take a positive pleasure in the perception that the two sides of his life are inconsistent. This is done by exploiting his vanity. He can be taught to enjoy kneeling beside the grocer on Sunday just because he remembers that the grocer could not possibly understand the urbane and mocking world which he inhabited on Saturday evening. And contrarywise, to enjoy the body and blasphemy over the coffee with these admirable friends all the more because he's aware of a deeper spiritual world within him which they cannot understand. You see the idea. The worldly friends touch him on one side and the grocer on the other, and he is the complete, balanced, complex man who sees round them all. Thus, while being permanently treacherous to at least two sets of people, he will feel instead of shame a continual undercurrent of self-satisfaction. Finally, if all else fails, you can persuade him in defiance of conscience to continue the new acquaintance on the ground that he is, in some unspecified way, doing these people good by the mere fact of drinking their cocktails and laughing at their jokes, and that to cease to do so would be priggish, intolerant, and of course, puritanical. Meanwhile, you will of course take the obvious precaution of seeing that this new development induces him to spend more than he can afford and to neglect his work and his mother. Her jealousy and alarm and his increasing evasiveness or rudeness will be invaluable for the aggravation of domestic tension. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. All right, there's a lot in here. So we're going to go really fast, really fast. I commend this to your contemplation. Uh, So much in here that is so very relevant these days. So first habit, choose your friends wisely. There's an old saying, you become your friends. And there's a lot of truth to that. Who you hang out with really matters. And just a few scripture verses. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. If we hang around people that do not challenge us to be better and stronger in our faith in Christ, we are going to stagnate. Also, part of the problem here is that we don't understand what it means to minister to people who are not Christians. Sometimes, and this is probably, unfortunately, not as much of an issue as the other way around, but uh, it would be wonderful if we had radical passion for trying to bring people who are not Christians to the Lord. But so often what happens is people who are Christians slip in to spending a lot of time in very sort of temptation-oriented circumstances, and their justification is they're trying to reach out 
But the fact of the matter is they're on the slippery slope. So choosing your friends wisely, thinking about who are people that you admire, that you would like to be like, and cultivating a relationship with them. Thinking about that continuum we've talked about before, of who are you being mentored by and who are you mentoring and who are you sharing in fellowship with. And then cultivating authenticity and speaking the truth in love. We should no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Those man-on-the-street surveys that are uh, often things we don't want to hear, uh, one of them we've talked about, the first adjective that comes to mind for Christians and man-on-the-street interviews of people who are not Christians is judgmental. When Jesus has said, by this all men will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. But the second word is hypocrite, that Christians are not authentic. And so authenticity, there's that cultivate word again. Authenticity is not easy. It means being vulnerable. It means sharing things that are difficult. It means talking about things that are difficult, but doing it, speaking the truth in love. And the problem with so many of us in the church is we may be really good at speaking truth, or we may be really good at loving people, but we're not very good at speaking the truth in love. Truth without love is judgment. Love without truth is permissiveness. Thirdly, remember daily that your faith requires you to make choices. This is so hard to remember in our culture because we live in a culture that is full of syncretism and cognitive dissonance, which basically means we think we can have it all. We don't have to make choices. We can have it all. And even when you go to a restaurant, you you can take the menu and in a nice restaurant, carve it up any way you want to. Um, Get all sorts of things. Take this sauce from that dish and this side and all of that. And so we, we have adopted that approach to life that we think that we can have it all and we don't have to make choices. But the problem is that Christianity, following Jesus, when you're following, it's just as if I told you to follow a car home and I told you to follow a red Honda Civic with a certain bumper sticker. And there are two red Honda Civics with the same bumper sticker in front of you. And when you get to the corner of Meeting Street, one turns left and one turns right. Well, you can't follow both of them. You have to choose. And when you're following Jesus, you have to choose whether you're going to follow him or you're going to follow something else. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but... I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And this is Jesus' discourse at the Last Supper, and the idea that because we belong to a different kingdom, we should expect that sometimes we're going to encounter opposition from the world. People are not going to like us. Now, again, you shouldn't be a jerk. People are going to dislike you if you're a jerk. You don't want to be disliked for the gospel, you especially don't want to be, I'm I'm sorry, you don't want to be disliked for being a jerk. If you're disliked because you're faithful to speaking the truth of the gospel in love, then so be it. But the problem with so many of us, it was like that little poem we talked about last week, erected by her brothers in memory of Martha Clay, here lies one who lived for others, now she has rest and so have they. It's that whole idea that sometimes we're not as much uh, joy to be around as we might think. So, live purposefully, avoiding the seduction of worldly vanities. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
This theme keeps coming up over and over again in this book about living purposefully. And the reason this is so important is it is like that old proverb, do not squander time, for it is what life is made of. And it's all too easy for us to think, well, someone else is going to spread the gospel. Someone else is going to take care of the poor. Someone else is going to help with the hospitality ministry or whatever it might be. Um, And we forget that we are God's people. And we have lost the passion that we're supposed to have for his kingdom. And the thing that's so sad about that is that because we've lost that passion, we've lost the joy as well. Because when you are passionate about God's kingdom and you put yourself in his hands and then see him do things in your life that you could never have imagined, there's incredible joy that comes with that. But we are all too prone to not live purposely. We, we let other people's schedules control us. And we are called to live purposely. Those of you that were back in the Inklings course a while back will remember part of what was remarkable about the Inklings was how deliberately they lived their lives. They chose what their priorities were, and they really lived into those. They were very purposeful, and the result of that is that they literally turned the world upside down in multiple different areas. So cultivate an integrated life rather than a spiritual secular split. This is that whole idea of being one person on Sunday and then someone else Monday through Friday, and we've usually got a trifecta, because we're one person Monday through Friday, somebody else on Saturday, and then somebody else on Sunday. And that is what Screwtape would love to have happen, because that is the definition of a hypocrite. And those of you that um, know a lot about etymology or studied Greek or any of those kinds of things will know that hypocrite is a Greek word that literally means mask. And it was the word that was used in Greek dramas. If you've seen a Greek drama or been to an amphitheater, you'll know that the actors played multiple roles. And the way that they showed which role they were in is they picked up this mask It was often like the size of a shield, and they would hold it in front of them while speaking their lines so you knew which character they were. Well, and that's where the word hypocrite comes from, and it's very descriptive because we have different masks that we put on. But one of the beautiful things when you read the Gospels is when you look at Jesus, Jesus is the most authentic, fully human person who ever walked on this earth. You don't see a shred of hypocrisy in Jesus' life. You see authenticity and truth and love married together. If you want to see speaking the truth and love in action, go read John 4, Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus loves this woman, and he speaks truth to her in a very difficult circumstance, But he does it in such a way that instead of feeling judged for the five different men that she's had and now the man she's living with, who's not her husband, she decides to give her life to Christ and goes and tells the whole village who he is. That is what happens when we are living authentically and speaking the truth in love. And this great verse from Ephesians, notice how proactive this is, just like that armor verse. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And the problem, and Screwtape is going to talk about this, he's already talked about it once, but we're going to see it again, is Screwtape wants to convince us Oh, well, when I became a Christian, that really wasn't a big deal. That was just like, I've just added another activity like tennis and grocery shopping into my life. And so it doesn't really change who I am. Whereas what scripture tells us is that when you encounter Jesus Christ in a saving way, you are picked up out of the kingdom of darkness and you are 
yanked out and you are moved to the kingdom of light. And you've still got darkness around you you have to cope with, but you don't belong over there anymore. And when you start realizing that, it changes the way you live over here. And then be deliberate about living out your priorities. This is probably the fifth time that one has come up. Um, And this great verse from Hebrews, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. So very important, living out priorities. And all of these things here about authenticity and friends and relationships are so important. Uh, Remember what scripture says about the double-minded man. And we live in a culture that is full of double-mindedness. And if we learn to really cultivate integrity and authenticity and speaking the truth and love in relationships, people will be drawn to us and we will have the opportunity to speak the gospel to people. We live in a culture where you see all the time people who are two-faced, people who are hypocrites, people who are self-centered, people who are different people depending on who they're with. And this letter, you know, written so many years ago anticipates all of that. So there's a lot there to think about. All right, so quick switch. This is going to be really quick. Um, One of the best talks at this Montreat conference that some of us recently went to was on the imagination of C.S. Lewis. And the imagination of C.S. Lewis is one of the great gifts that we need to understand from Lewis's life. Because we live in a reductionist, deconstructionist, rationalistic age where we think the only way of knowing is factual kind of knowing. But that is something that has never been true through the history of the world. It is a modern innovation. And Lewis believe that one of the great ways that we know things that are really important is through our imagination and that through the wonder that comes through our imagination that remarkable insights and understandings about truth can happen. This talk was given by Jerry Root, who holds the chair of evangelism at Wheaton College. He is an amazing man. He's written all sorts of books, um, and he is one of the most effective evangelists Um, alive in the world right now. And this talk, I wish you could have heard him instead of me. But um, just a couple of highlights of it. He talks about how faith integration was at the heart of Lewis's academic works. And when we think about Lewis and faith, we think about mere Christianity and all of that. But he made a very compelling case that Lewis's use of an understanding of the Christian imagination is in all of his textbooks, things that are still used in graduate schools around the world now. And that the way he wrote uh, really includes a defense and apology for Christian values and is just shot through with truth, beauty, and goodness in a remarkable way. And he um, quoted from uh, Plato's Gorgias, which was a uh, work that was dear to Lewis's heart, saying that the orator must be virtuous or may wreak havoc, which is a great line. And then he talked about how this idea of longing, where the heavens and earth are declaring the glory of God and we're longing for how to get there, is all through Lewis's academic work. And then he talked a little bit about science, and he said science begins with imagination. And we've forgotten that, that you can't have a hypothesis unless someone imagines something different from the way that things have traditionally been understood. And he said, usually in science, there's this imaginative hypothesis and then some modeling that takes place, and then you begin to see whether this might be true. So he says, to grow well, you have to use your imagination to conceive of that which you are entering. And it's a little bit like the scripture verse, taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, Lewis was very influenced by the scholastics, Thomas Aquinas, um, the others in that period who were loving God with their mind, but really talking about the transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness, and how those are pointers to the kingdom of God. He also talked about the fact that um, analogy is a way that helps us 
to grow in our knowledge and love of God. That the more we can, because God is inexpressible in so many ways, that when we can think of God as like this or like that, or this is a situation that shows us the truth about God, that's a way that we can learn that's really important. And then this whole idea that evil is not something with its own independent existence. It is a twisting of the good. And then he talked about negative uses of imagination that uh, Lewis shows us. Eustace and Edmund, Eustace in um, the Silver Chair, uh, Eustace in the Dawn Treader, Edmund in the Line, the Witch in the Wardrobe, thinking everyone else has it wrong. We're so smart. All you other people are so stupid. Just get out of our way. What is wrong with you people? Um, and he does such a great job with that. And the Ghost and the Great Divorce, those of you that have read that book, it's exactly the same principle. So that is a negative use that he did very effectively. Transformation, a wrong understanding where all some presuppositions are wrong. And then the overgenerous imagination to inflate beyond reality. And then the positive uses of imagination, uh, what he called the primary imagination, which is taking data from the senses that fires your sense of wonder and writing about that in a way that becomes beautiful and breathtaking for people who are not there. Coleridge's description of waterfalls is one of the things that Lewis loved like that. Um, And then another use of imagination is penetrating Shakespeare using multiple metaphors, awakening wonder and complexity. Dante with all of these different similes. Um, Chesterton, this is such a great one. The world won't starve for want of wonders, but for want of wonder. Lewis said that George MacDonald, another writer who is big on imagination, baptized Lewis's imagination. Uh, Another thing that is so interesting that Lewis talks about uh, is the realizing imagination. Um, You see this in lots of different works where uh, there's a newer work that calls back from an older work. It's like West Side Story, which is a retelling of Romeo and Juliet. Um, The Great Divorce, which refers back to Dante's Divine Comedy. Um, The Lion King draws from Hamlet. And then there's this beautiful scene in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader um, that Lewis describes where there are these creatures called duffel pods that live on this island. And they hop around on one foot, and there's an old magician that lives on the island with this big book of spells. And the duffel pods, somebody told them they were ugly. So they got the idea they were ugly, so they found a spell to make themselves invisible. So there are all these invisible, one-footed creatures that are hopping around, and they finally decide that it would be better for them if they could actually see each other. So when Lucy gets there, they ask Lucy to go in (coughs) to the magician's house and find the book of spells. Well, as you can imagine... The atmosphere of the magician's house is full of all sorts of strange and wondrous things. And when she goes into the room where the Book of Spells is, she feels this power in there. And she's looking through this book, and she sees all of these different spells. She's looking for the one to make people visible. But then she sees one to have a beauty that is more beautiful than anyone else on earth. And she's so tempted. And she thinks about it, and finally she summons all her willpower and gets to the next page. And the next page is a spell to listen in on what other people are saying about you. (laughs) And she just can't restrain herself. And so she listens in to a very hurtful conversation between two of her friends talking about her in an ugly way. And she's heartbroken. And right at that moment, Aslan comes to be with her and takes her to the next spell. And the next spell is a spell for the refreshment of the spirit. And I'd love to read you the whole thing, but just this one line. She was living in the story as if it were real. It was about a cup and a sword and a tree and a green hill. And what you can tell when you read it is that it is the story of Jesus in the gospel. And that when she reads that spell, 
it's not just a spell, but it's a story, a reality that she inhabits in a way that changes her life. It is, it is a beautiful thing. So the gospel story, uh, Jerry Reap pointed this out as something that Lewis believed really strongly. So the gospel story is everywhere. It is hardwired into creation. It's in all of the old myths. It's in fairy tales. It's in movies. It's all over everywhere. And it's such a bridge for us to be able to share with other people. And he talked a little bit about um, a great time that uh, Jerry Root had when he went out to Hollywood. And he was meeting with the Screenwriters Guild. And he was surprised that he had been invited Uh, because he's very well known to be a Christian. But apparently, uh, there were some Christians in the Screenwriters Guild who had sort of pulled some subterfuge to get him there. And so they got him there, and then all the questions that he was asked were gospel questions. And it was because the Christians had decided to dominate the question and answer time. But one of the things he said he learned is that if you watch uh, one of the versions of the Jungle Book, that when Baloo the bear gives up his life, there is a, one of the creatures right after that says, greater love has no one than this, that he give up his life for his friends. And one of these screenwriters had taken that line from the gospel and just stuck it right in there. So, but he, Jerry was talking about, you know, that's everywhere. Avatar, I didn't know this means incarnation in Sanskrit. Um, And then he talked about how the Titanic movie, um, Jack is a Christ figure in so many different ways. Um, And then I love this. He ended saying, Hamlet can't meet Shakespeare, but Shakespeare can write himself into the play. (laughs) And that is exactly the way that we see God dealing with us. He writes himself into the play through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I wish you could have heard that talk. It was great. Can you put that chart in the stuff you send out? Yes, yes. And then our closing quotation from Screwtape, the thing he hates the most. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the great gift of this book. Lord, we confess to you that we so often live in a mindset that is not a kingdom mindset, and that our relationships and our duplicity don't reflect the values of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us learn to look up and not down, to set our minds on things above, to cultivate these habits, that the lives that we live would be full of joy, that they would be lives that are full of purpose, and that they would be lives that annoy the devil. Lord, we pray that as we walk through the rest of the season of Advent, that you would bless us with an ever-increasing sense of wonder at your love shown in the incarnation. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One quick announcement before you go. Um, Next class will be Wednesday, January the 8th. Um, Also, just an announcement for people that are distance learning students, which we have lots of. Um, If you want to get added to the um, email list and you're not in Charleston, email me at St. Philip's Church, and we will add you to that. And uh, that will be a nice supplement to the podcast. The other thing is, if you are in Charleston, I really want to commend to you the Lessons and Carol service here on Sunday at 1030. It is a wondrous service that traces God's plan of salvation from Genesis right up through the incarnation of Jesus Christ with incredible music, and there's no sermon. So it is uh, a time that the truth, beauty, and goodness, and the word of God speak in power. But it is an awesome thing to invite friends to. You can tell them it's a Christmas concert and bring them to that. And uh, they will not feel threatened by that. 
but I would encourage you to use that as a means of sharing. Another thing that's a great thing to do that someone was talking to me about that they had done this, if you have friends that you don't know how to get into conversations about spiritual things, one of the great benefits of all this technology is you could suggest that they listen to one of the podcasts out of some one of these classes and that you listen to it and then you talk about it together. So just think of that as a resource. So with all that, thank you so much for coming. Have a wonderful and blessed Advent. And all of the uh, links to this should be out in the next couple of days. Thank you, Brian. Thank you.